You were saying we we uh, our whole system inclines towards well-being, happiness in various forms. Big simple word happiness, but fundamental okayness or well-being, and uh, by and large we seek that in either in two ways. One is you like food, which means something that directly you know, imparts some energy to us, picks us up, so pleasing to see or touch or taste, think about, experience through the senses or subtle senses, you know, so kind of this, if you like, the cherry on the cake. Uh, the other is, is shelter, which means we feel comfortable. Nobody's bothering me, nothing's hassling me, I've got no weight on my back. You know, so that's kind of like, you might say, that arises through removal, one arises, comes because things have been added, and one comes because things have been taken away. You know, things are sources of stress are being taken away. And the second kind of, of well-being is is uh, is not so acclaimed because you can't uh, you can't really sell absence. <laughs> Nowadays, you can sell things like holiday cottages. You know, on a, on an island somewhere, and you, you kind of you can have it advertised like that, but mostly what's presented is things you can actually, you can get something, you know, you can have something, you can get something, rather than be free of something. Mm. But in Buddha Dharma, you get both of these, there are cherries on the cake, in terms of particular meditative experiences you can have, which are very pleasing and pleasant, and yet the overall, the basic theme is to remove remove the sources of stress and discomfort, um, alienation, loss, worry, agitation, these kinds of things. Because it, it's, if you like, it's, it's the well-being that comes from feeling comfortable. Mm. And that deepens and deepens and deepens. The more you see, say, external causes that make you feel unhappy, and then you begin to pare it down to really the root of it, all these internal causes, such as one's... Uh, nervousness or one's guilt or one's regrets or one's um, you know um, irritability things like that you know know, this is where it gets really penetrative to actually clean out these Um, but it's a good reflection because it it is it is giving you a sense of in that fundamentally you know there is an okayness it's just a few sort of taints and tints and colorings that got added that you, you can you can wash out it's just a purification and the end result is not some sort of bleached state uh, <laughs> abstracted bleached out state but feeling feeling good um, feeling comfortable in yourself and uh, fluent um, competent confident clear intelligent bright so on. Yeah. Not because it's been added, but because things have been taken away. So this is really what I sort of see as the path. It's a cleaning process, clearing, cleaning. Yeah. And one one of the things that uh, needs to be taken away is, is the is the feeling of inadequacy or worry we get. Particularly when we, we are kind of conditioned into thinking our lives should be full of things, you know, ra- rather than you know, full of cherries, if you like. Life is just a bowl of cherries. <laughs> I don't know who wrote that. <laughs> I think there's only a few st- Stones in those cherries. <laughs> There's a few rotten cherries there as well. So 
So I don't, I personally, I disagree. I don't think my <laughs> life is a bowl of cherries. I think. <laughs> so you think, why aren't I getting the right cherry? You know, so I've done enough. I've got something out of life. So you know, the attitude is one of of looking for food, looking for looking for things to to fill up the vacancy. But really, the problem is, is there's a, this kind of nagging inadequacy sense because we're looking for the wrong thing. It's like looking for the, the, um, you know, cherries when there aren't any, you know, or cherries when there are oranges or dates or something like that. Or as I think the anecdote goes of the, the sage who's, shift, who's sifting through a bag of chilies, keeps eating chili peppers and. You know, weeping, his mouth is burning, and they're saying, "Why are you doing that?" And he says, well, "I'm looking for the sweet one." <laughs> yeah. So, and you think there's something wrong with me because I'm not getting it. <laughs> it's not that there aren't any cherries. I must admit. <laughs> But there are, there are some cherries in that bowl. Yeah. But, the, but when you get into this kind of grabbing habit, then it, it takes you away from the feeling of, of kind of contentment. And also the, the path. Because if life is a bowl of cherries, they're going to come anyway. You, know? you don't need to be grabbing them, because if life is a bowl of cherries and you're alive, surely ones are going to fall into your mouth sooner or later. <laughs> So it's, the, it's this kind of reaching out and, and, and trying to find that makes one always feel restless. And that restlessness itself and the worry and the sense of inadequacy or doubt and so forth acts as one, one fundamental bias in the mind. Mm-hmm. And of course we can, when we're looking at our, our life bowl, you can think of things that have not so nice, you know, what your son's done this, or your mother's doing that, or your dog's doing this, or something or the other, so that you can feel a bit gloomy about. And uh, again, you know, this is uh, without really picking up the purity of the mind. So you want to tend to the wrong thing. Now it's also just to recognise that when you, we're not saying you just ignore things, but if you if you don't, you can try to if you like. The aim is eventually is that from we can pick things up from the purity, the goodness, the happiness of our minds, the clarity, the intelligence, rather than the franticness or the frustration or the irritation or the, the jealousies that go on. So essentially, you know you you do clean out these things, then you can handle the, the rough spots and the beautiful things and the ugly bits and the absences with a sense of some, some strength and some clarity and some confidence. And maybe one of the things that uh, is the most difficult to, to arrive at is, is confidence itself, confidence in yourself. Uh, that, in a way, is, is one very clear reference to what it is to feel comfortable in this in this sense you, know, you feel confident you have, you have assurance and it's one of the marks of if you like the, the attainment the first level of attainment of a, of these in the in the different kinds of, of disciples is that they have faith they have deep confidence um, they have confidence in certain respects. They have confidence in terms of, of um, their conduct. They know that what they're doing. They're clear about that. Yeah. Uh, they realise they're not doing things that are going to cause them problems or other people problems. It's very clear for them. They have a very strong sense of what's called a hiriotopa or conscience and concern. And that remain. That's like a kind of, um, you know, of. Uh, a virus checker on your system. You can sense something's a bit dodgy and you wait a minute, no. That one's going no. And you so you've got a very firm reference to 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 where um, 
good and evil, if you like, a very skillful and unskillful arise. And so you're clear about that, and you know good is not just a matter of, of conformity to external norms, but what makes what brings around your own well-being, your own freedom from, from guilt, remorse, fuzziness, confusion. So there, there, there's, there's confidence in respect to that. And there's confidence in respect to awakening, to Buddha, to, to Dhamma, which is truthfulness, honesty, uh, honesty about the way things are, and towards Sangha, towards the, sense, the uh, integrity of practice. Mm. Means that human beings can progress. This is what really the full meaning of Sangha is. It means that this this can be personalized. It's not an abstract teaching. It's carried by real human beings who can practice it and, and realize in themselves um, greater comfort, greater freedom. Mm. So there's confidence regard to that. Confidence or faith, let's say. All of us has some degree of faith, confidence, otherwise we can't get out of the door in the morning. In some sense that confidence means you you basically feel you, you know you can more or less cope. <laughs> you can kind of walk down the street and you can meet people, you can you can cope with things. That the future is not a complete uh, source of panic or dread. You've got the capacity to, to deal with life. So we all have that to a degree, and there are times when it gets shaken. But uh, the, um, the first level of attainment is when that confidence is complete. You know, when the confidence is complete. It means that uh, you know, death doesn't, doesn't shake you. Pain doesn't shake you. Blame doesn't shake you. Um, these things, gain and loss, don't shake you. Um, being uh, ignored doesn't bother you. Being famous doesn't doesn't move you. Mm-hmm. So you're not shaken around by these things. You, you, it doesn't matter whether people acknowledge you or don't acknowledge you. You know, dump on you or don't dump on you. Garland you, throw garlands over you or other things over you, because you you know you you know what you you know what you're about, and you're not caught. You're not reaching out for these. These what are called worldly dhammas, which are the the potential cherries you know, that the world can seemingly offer, but they get you hooked on reaching out. You, you, you're at home. You're in yourself. You're at home. Yeah. So it's good to, to to kind of check that where do, where do we lose that? Where does that occur? Where do we get rattled? This is, uh, we see the places where one needs some support. Now much of the Buddha's teaching is really a teaching based upon his insight into cause and effect. So, um, the great realizations that that transformed this uh, Gautama into the Buddha, there were three great great insights or realizations he had apparently on this one night. You know, this may be, of course, a kind of more legendary uh, formulation of it, but fundamentally a sense of, of uh, being part of a process rather than just a, a, you know, an ind- a being who lives one life in one body as one identity. So at the end of life, it's all finished, that's it. He, he began to recognize or realize that this very form, this identity, this personality, was just one, one wave in a whole stream. So he, so he actually came out of the, of the experience of death. I mean, this, things obviously die. And yet there's some recognition of, yeah, well, you know, dying is like getting a haircut. It's a major haircut. <laughs> Very short. <laughs> Drop the whole lot. But that's all it is, you know, because you pop up again, or something pops up again next time round. 
So, you, you know, you look, you, that, that is, a, so there's a major source of, of um, you know, some confidence that comes through that. that this, this, this death, aging experience, which certainly most of us get very worked up about, and, and fear and, and dread and, or agitated and pain by, you can see, well, yeah, but that's not the end of the story. So it's sort of enlarging of the vision beyond beyond that. Uh, but the second uh, vision he had was cause and effect, which is that although this process of birth and death goes on and on and on, the particular way it moves to whether it moves towards uh, welfare or dis-ease is dependent upon the kind of actions we commit. It is, he began to see that if people act unskillfully with violence, greed, abuse and so forth, then they, 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 they go on in this life and in future lives to places that are miserable. It's something we can witness for ourselves in this life. You know, if you if you build up habits of resentment or abuse to yourself or to others, then your mind becomes crabby, irritable, paranoid. You know, not very pleasant thing to live with. It's kind of very simple in a way, um, and yet it's as part of it is that that part of the teaching is that it is actually something that you can is accessible. It doesn't start from the, the the sky. It starts from the ground. It starts from something we we can get our hands on. We can do something about whether we tell the truth or not. We can do something about whether we violate other beings or not. We can do something about whether we uh, intoxicate ourselves and we drink or not. You can. This is not subtle. It's kind of you know. So you can do so, and that actually is going to bring welfare. And it, more than that, it actually begins to, to, to shift where you seek that. Because uh, naturally, you know, having a few glasses of wine, is there's cherries there, aren't there? It's not unpleasant. Well, some very beautiful, subtle flavours and pleasant moods that come out of these activities, otherwise people wouldn't do them. Yeah. So, yeah, but then you think, well, wait a minute, well, what's actually happening here when we do this? Okay, the mind gets a bit sort of fuzzy and, and loses some clarity. And at the end of it, <laughs> no, you know, you may not have done any harm, but you haven't really done much good either. And something like that, you, you begin to see even wider senses of cause and effect. This is kind of, can be a bit of an issue for for Buddhists, and think, well, you know, fifth precept, don't it means don't get smashed. That's all. Okay, you don't, don't go out and get paralytic, smashed. You know, but don't be sherry now and then. You know, to get smashed. Fair enough. So of course you you know you do what they do. You do what you do, but it's to, just to consider that, um, well, yeah, that's true, but if you, you know, you've got a bottle of sherry in your house, we probably have a bottle of port as well, and so forth, you might as well have a couple of glasses, a bottle of, a couple of Bordeaux as well, you know, so you, and your friends come round and, okay, you want to give them a glass of wine, maybe you don't get smashed, but Bert, who doesn't know his measure, knocks down a bo- half a bottle of your best claret, Ends up, you know, saying a few regrettable things about his missus, and has to be carried home. <laughs> and at the same time, when it's kind of signalling that, that a substance which is clearly linked to people beating their wives, people crashing their cars, people um, committing violence, saying all kinds of unskillful things. You know that somehow a little that that's kind of okay. You know, it's like having a gun and say, "Well, I only only have a little air gun." You know? 
But you're still kind of saying that the, the thing itself is kind of there's no there's no clear line. So is is if break if drinking one glass of sherry isn't breaking the fifth precept, what about two? What about five? You know? Where does the precept have to kick in? You know, at what level? <laughs> I'm sure if I had half a glass of sherry, I'd be flat on my back by now. I've got no absolutely no tolerance to the stuff. I can drink anybody can drink me under the table. Best I can manage is about three pints. Right, that was the best. I never really got very good at it. So I knew guys who could go out for an evening and knock down, you know, at least at least ten pints, and you know, have a game of darts is just normal. <laughs> so you see the sense of cause and effect. It's not just what affects me, but what kind, what sort of a society do I keep? What what friends do I keep? What values do I uphold, and um, what values do I do I present as being not really very important? So you think, well, actually, I, if I made a, some sort of statement or stand here that this is not good stuff, yeah, without being heavy about it, then that might be that might be more helpful to not encourage other people to do that. So you see that the kind of cause and effect is both internal, external, short-term and long-term. It's not just a simple thing. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a profound thing that we start to lay down particular uh, senses of, of clarity around uh, potentials. Not just around what actually happens, but potentials. And then what happens when we decide to, to develop something like checking and restraining the mind? You know, there's a potential there that is not developed if one, if one doesn't actually check and restrain oneself from doing something. You know? So why don't you check and restrain yourself from doing things that are, first of all, directly harmful, and then probably not so good, and then, you know, finally just worthless, pointless. And just exercise a little bit of that sort of psychological muscle, if you like. And it's important to get the, the sense of why, why one cultivates like that is to give you confidence in yourself. You've got some capacity, you've got some strength, you know where you stand. You know, people could say what they like, but you know, you know where you are. I think this is very important because particularly in terms of, of morality, even the very word itself has kind of tends to give people goose pimples because so much of it is what I call top-down morality, which means it's imposed from above, you know, by somebody sitting up on a chair <laughs> in a forfeit somewhere, telling you what you should do. <laughs> so you think, mm. And... Uh, because it's kind of a repressive feeling to it and a a blaming feeling to it so you don't like it Um, and it's it's the the sense of developing sila from confidence is is from, if you like, from the ground up like what do I really seek, want what does me good in my life work from there and then this is a suggestion. Watch out for this area. Just watch out for this area. You know, I mean, everybody lives their own lives, but just be, watch out for these particular topics. Cause and effect. What do you do? What do you see? Why? why what kind of motivate? What it motivates you? Um, what are the results of what you do? What are the results of what you do in terms of things like, um, you know, um, anger? boredom, restlessness, um, things like this. And what's the result of feeling comfortable in yourself? Because um, you develop a, a very refined sense of, um, sense of, cause of, of conscience and concern. Which means the mind becomes quite sensitive to... to Things like the way we speak, 
the way we move out, the way we present ourselves in threatening ways or forceful ways. Yeah. So your mind starts to pick up the, these potentials we have for somehow abusing or, or uh, coming on violent, um, seducing other people, manipulating other people. And you, wait a minute, I don't do that. There's it's said that the, the skillful mind is something that recoils from this, just as when you put a feather next to a flame, the feather kind of pulls back if you've ever done that with a feather. Make sure the bird has dropped it first of all. That's not so good. <laughs> so you get a you know, feather and you put it in a flame. What it does is the whole thing kind of bends back. And it's, this is what the mind does. It kind of moves away from, from <coughs> things that are unskillful. But it's that sense, unskillful, means it does me no good, is not worthy of me. It's not that I am so depraved and brutal, but there are, there are potentials that, that are not doing me any good, that are not worthy of me. I can rise above these, I don't need to follow this. And therefore I have confidence in myself. Of all the, the precepts, actually probably the, one of the most important is, uh, strange, it sounds strange, is truthfulness. Is, is refrain from the harmful speech. The speech really represents the way the mind begins to map out reality. The way we think is where we map out a reality. You know, reality so much depends upon what our thought constructions are, the way we conceive things. So if you actually haven't trained the mind to be honest and truthful, you don't know what truth is. Because the mind can always, it's a monkey mind. It can always present angles and possibilities. So, you know, I know people who, who have developed a kind of ability to manipulate by being economical with the truth. Not directly lying, but kind of not bothering to mention this, emphasizing that, exaggerating this, adding a few tints to that, uh, in order to get particular things going that they think will be good or helpful. Not necessarily with a completely wrong intent, with a kind of crooked, crooked movement of the mind. And you realize the person doesn't actually know anymore what truth really is. You've lost that. So it's truth is just opinion. Yeah. But the real mark of truth is that your mind is quite is quite still with it. Is it's that. It doesn't got any bend in it. It doesn't have any any motivation in it. It doesn't present something in order that. It's just, well, that's true. It's like that. So there's a kind of a steadiness <coughs> and, a, and a stillness about, about truth. And that's what you, you know, so when you can recognize that, you, most of us are going to feel a, you know, a good amount of emotional ups and downs in our lives, things that move us, things that push us, things that we dread, things that we hope for, things that we fear, and it's got this kind of moving, pushing thing. Do you know where the stillness is? Because that's what you want to have confidence in. Yeah. And stillness may be just the truthfulness to know this is, uh, you know, feeling, mood, impression, this is not something not to be followed, this is something to be attended to carefully. So the, the body of truth, or the quality of truthfulness, is a paramount thing, because that's what determines you know, what we, what we, how we even conceive the world that we're going to act in. And so this is, this is massively important, isn't it? Because as long as we keep conceiving the world in terms of aliens and terrorists and horrible people over there and nasty, this, that and the other, well, sure, then you've got the basis for, well, we, unfortunately, we have to blow them up. <laughs> you know, we don't like to do this, but once you've actually started to create a world of, of uh, like that, 
based upon your own biases and perceptions, then the mind sooner or later comes up with the justifications for, for actions that would not be justified, would not, would not stand up if we were actually being really truthful about other human beings. You know, you know, about the way things really are. Where, does, where do people get angry and violent from? Because of inadequate, you know, poverty. Um, it's cause and effect. There's no such thing as bad people. There, are, there, are, there is suffering and stress and, that's, and, and inability to cope with that. And because of that, any human being starts to get violent, abusive and so forth. So why don't we try looking at the causes and removing those? That would be the honest way to, to, to deal with things rather than just blasting the symptoms and calling it people. So though we may think of something like um, you know, developing truthfulness to be not in yourself as not being that significant, it is very significant. And you, above, you get the feeling of, because you can really feel for yourself what it's like when the mind does not take the bait of the easy lie, you know, the easy glib excuse. Uh, when the mind doesn't doesn't take that one, the one that's going to get me off the hook, the one that's going to make things go the way I want them to, it, it refuses to take that because it's not actually the truth. And you can feel that kind of corner cutting, cajoling, you know, thing. <laughs> Don't want that. (laughs) And so this isn't just to be right. This is to feel good. Feel good in the way of comfort. Then whatever anybody else says or does, one has one's truth. Nobody's going to take that away from me. That's, my, that's a refuge. One that one's confident in that, one's faith in that. And you see that <clears throat> that's something that we can, very palpable, very tangible, you know, in daily life, it's, it's, it's something that integrates into our life because, you know, within one hour, you'll have the chance to, do, to practice that, certainly. Mm-hmm. It's not, you don't have to get into some remote meditative state or you can only do it on Sundays. <laughs> Even just in terms of listening to one's own inner chatter, you say, wait a minute. You know, it doesn't take... So you, that, that gives one a very way of, of a really... Um, you can get hold of and there's, there's effects to that. There's, there's an effect on that. And interestingly enough, the, the Buddha said that this sense of conscience and concern, being really clear, trying to be really sensitive and clear, so, you, so it builds up this, this unshakable body of truthfulness, is, the fa- is a cause and condition for the arising of mindfulness. Conscience and concern is a cause and condition for the arising of mindfulness, which is, which is something that people make a lot of in, in Dhamma teaching, mindfulness, means the ability to bear something in mind. Again, it's a fairly mundane quality. It means you can actually stay with a theme. You can't stay with it if your mind is kind of shifty and, and uh, you know, subject to, to influences. Uh, well, maybe I'll stay with it tomorrow, or it doesn't really matter. Or, you know, when your mind is not reliable then you don't really have the ability to sustain mindfulness. When the mind, I'll be mindful, oh, that looks more interesting over there. There's a cherry over there. <laughs> Drop it, you know. <laughs> so it's, it's this kind of sense of, almost like the shift that comes when you, you, you realise that the inner quality of veracity and um, is what you value most highly and feels good. Then mindfulness is something that's, that's, that's you can you can bear something in mind, and you you bear in mind, you bring and you sustain in mind something you, you, that's that's relevant. You know? 
that is the sense of your body, particular quality of heart. So you you continue you sustain that in mind. You don't drop it in order to grab a cherry out of the of the dish. Mm. So this is what mindfulness is about. <coughs> So the Dhamma, which is you know, when you to have uh, some confidence in 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 the Dhamma. Dhamma is a difficult word to to actually translate. Partly because the way we tend to our language is constructed, particularly in kind of religious and philosophical terms, we tend to create the essences like truth, you know, some this is Platonic, Platonism, truth, goodness, sort of some some essence that, that dwells, you know. And we look towards these these undying essences. This is you know, Plato, Plato and Neoplatonism. But Dhamma is more like is not really an essence. It's uh, it just it's it's um, it means the kind of the 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 way things fit together. You could call it the, the in in uh, China they have the word the Tao, which means the way things actually fit, the order, the norm, the law, the balance. You know, so we might say that the you know the the Dhamma. Of a, of a human body as it breathes in and out. If it didn't do that, it would no longer function, it would stop. So this, you say, is the, you know, the cause and condition for that, of a body is food, shelter, breathing in and out. So that's, that's a body's dhamma. The cause, the dhamma of a society is that people have uh, a group norm, group standards, group conventions that they adhere to. There's a sense of value and, and um, morality and kindness otherwise there's no society you've got basically anarchy mm. so so you can say there is there is these are kind of dumber is like that it means some it's, it's the the overriding principles that sustain make things possible and uh, buddha dhamma is called the pachupana dhamma which means the Dhamma that arises dependent in the present. So something arises, it's the quality of what, of what we're witnessing in the present moment. What are the causes? Yeah. What, what is the pachaya? What is the cause for what arises in the present? So this is the Dhamma of awakening. Yeah. So you might say that the Dhamma of, of, of of a society is, um, you know, some sense of trust and faith and, and morality, otherwise it's no longer a society. The Dhamma of awakening, the sine qua non, the essential quality of awakening, is that there's a realization of the causes that are arising in the present moment. In other words, is what's coming up in the moment based upon skillful qualities that lead me to peace and well-being or is it based upon dubious qualities that lead me into doubt or is it, le- is it based upon actually unskillful qualities that lead me into unskillfulness so you, this is where you're awakening to you're awakening to this and this is, in summary this is the Buddha's second big realisation was just this and he began to see, well actually you know, when you, rather than have to deal with this whole kind of thousands of birth things, really in the present moment you can begin to witness the causes that are pushing you right now and say, actually, if you can let go of certain fundamental biases, certain fundamental taints or asavas, corruptions, then there's there's a sense of complete purity and freedom from being pushed around by things, a sense of the stress the push, the disempowerment, the confusion, the restlessness of life ceases. You're in, you're in a state of, of awakeness. You're awakening to a quality of, of deep ease and release from stress. 
So uh, practice then is, is, in terms of meditation, is you developing mindfulness so that you can bear in mind, you can sustain attention around a particular mental, or physical, uh, or particularly the, the mental impressions that are arising in the present, and begin to you know, hold those more skillfully, not be rocked by them, um, bring up things that, are, that are give you a feeling of comfort, calm and ease, and begin to clean out these, these distortions that occur. And that's through witnessing in the, in, the, in the present moment, but it's witnessing causes that have come from the past. So it's not just the kind of, um, you know, be present, everything's fine. It's be present, and what, what do you see when you're being present? You know, what, what do you begin to experience? And you maybe experience uh, some, you know, stressful qualities and unstressful qualities, skillful qualities, unskillful qualities. <clears throat> and then, well, which are on. So, this is what you, you learn, and you develop the factor of investigation. You begin to study and investigate. What's this? Is this going anywhere good? What does it feel like? Uh-huh. And you get really good at this. It's what meditation, one way of meditating, is, is to develop this investigation faculty. So this is called a factor of awakening. Mindfulness is a factor of awakening. Investigation is a factor of awakening. Persistence, staying with it, is a factor of awakening. <clears throat> These are kind of fundamental you know, <coughs> factors that you <coughs> bring up in order to, to meditate <coughs> and stay with it and you investigate because that is uh, um, trying to see, witness what is skillful, what is unskillful. Mm. And um, Particularly using the, the Buddha's prime, primary instructions would be, first of all, external realities, like, well, you know, if, if, if where you act, how does that, you know, what, what, what would it be like if someone did that to you? Someone lied to you, how would it feel? If you couldn't trust them, then are you trustworthy? So you get this sense of measuring one against the other, because you can see that. But with the mind, the mind is so um, um, shifting that you would generally encourage people to be aware of the mind in, in, as it, in terms of its bodily effects. Because yes. this is the one that the monkey can't pull the, pull the wool over your eyes. You know when you're getting angry, when you, when you feel your face flush and your fingers start knotting up? You can't say you're feeling peaceful. <laughs> You know you're feeling uh, uptight because your body tightens up. You know, you know when you're feeling sad because your chest sinks. You know when you're feeling worried because you get a churning in your guts. Mm. And uh, when you're feeling tense, you can feel this kind of band tightening around your head. Yeah. So developing bodily awareness is a very good way to, to really be truthful. Because the mind is, is not just um, deliberately a, a liar, but also it wants to avoid the uncomfortable. So we can always go somewhere else with our minds. You know, the men, mental habit is, is, is not to be truthful, not to be really truthful. So you have to kind of say, well, you know, to get present, what, what's happening in terms of your mental state? Can you feel it as directly um, saddening? Um, and you begin to see what, what, is, what does unskillful mean? Skillful and unskillful really mean? Are these just value judgments that we place on things? Are these things that people wag, wag their fingers at us and tell us is skillful or not skillful? How do you know something skillful or not skillful? 
Do you have to rely upon your, your own self-criticism to tell you? You know, if I relied on mine, everything I do is unskillful. Because <laughs> the mind can also be very uh, uh, critical, self-critical. So we can have doubt. Well, maybe I did, maybe I did, maybe I didn't. Or you can worry, I should have done. Or you can actually, your memory can distort things. You, think you can have a very distorted impression of what you did or said, or the way you did or said something in the past, or the way somebody else acted. Yeah? So you're trying to rely upon the mind to give you truth. And you see that there's a lot of unskillfulness just in the, mind, in the mind's assessments. But what you can begin to, to, to sense is once you've learned just the, the sense of, of what it feels like to tell the truth, you feel, hey, if it's, if it's moving and stirring, if it's kind of pushing and pressing, it's probably not the truth. Because <laughs> the truth just feels, oh, that's that then. You know, there's a kind of simplicity and an openness and a clarity. So if it's something that's kind of nagging and pushing, it's probably not true. There's an element of, of, of something not true about that, because it's not balanced. Truth means that things are, are done where they're in balance. They're, there's an order to them. So where do, where do we find truth? We begin to check in meditation, you check the mind against its, its own movements, its own qualities, whether this is making you feel sad, violent, angry, depressed, or it makes you feel confident, clear, bright, open, whether actually the mind you know, picks up something and there's immediately, oh, that's that, then it's finished, or it just goes hammering on and on and on. Yeah. So you think, this, 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 this particular habit is not skillful because it's just leading to greater stress and distress. It's not intrude. It's not intrude. And the referring, then referring to the mind to the body, you can begin to sense when the body feels open and bright and clear and relaxed then you don't feel depressed, and you don't feel worried, and you don't feel agitated. It's, it, the, the mental and emotional energies have definite effects on your body. And one of the ways we're, we're encouraged to develop mindfulness of the body is because when you really bear the body in mind and thoroughly investigate and examine it, it becomes a very good template against which you can witness you know, what the mind is doing. You can feel yourself getting stirred up. You can feel yourself getting a bit tight and constricted. And you can also feel the release of these tensions and the happiness that comes from that. When something lets go, when something relaxes, something comes to rest. You actually feel more than just a sense of, of approval. You feel good. You feel bright. You feel well. Uh, and so there's great confidence. You see that truth is not just a matter of it says so on the paper, but actually I feel in true, I feel balanced with that, I feel comfortable in myself. So investigation, persistence leads to the quality called rapture, which means you feel uplifted, lifted up, not dragging yourself up, not trying to affirm yourself. You actually feel the sense of gladness arising and it has a bodily effect. Because of that, your mind becomes at ease and you become tranquil. The mind is not continually rehearsing stories, so it becomes quiet. What's called samadhi arises. Um, and then there's that balance, equanimity. So this, very briefly, is, is these are the causal factors of awakening. They are caused and conditioned factors that arise. And they hold this body of truth. It means that when they're there, your your mind does not tell you lies. It does not tell you doesn't tell you fairy stories. It does not follow wild um, um, 
goose, wild geese. <laughs> does not pick up red herrings. It does not thrash around the past. It does not fantasize about the future. It doesn't keep trying to rehearse your old story again and again and again about how I am and I'm not and I should be and they don't and I want and how it isn't and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't do that. Yeah. Because it, you know, the mind has found its own center and its own beauty and the world doesn't touch that. This is, so this is caused. It's not a kind of flash in the pan or act of grace it's, it's, it's caused through building up these particular factors and strengths. And actually, it just but it starts with that sense of, of you know, where is happiness going to come from? Okay, there are different ways we can be happy. We all know that. Where's the, the, the kind of most uh, long-term? Think big, you know. We think of cause and effects. Think big and think of, of a whole lifetime. Because, yeah. you, you know, you don't know. Maybe, who knows, next lifetime. No, this lifetime. Okay, what are you doing now? You do that for the next 40 years. <laughs> if you've got 40 years left, that is. How's it going to be? <laughs> are you happy with that? Is that enough? Or would you, you know, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to, you know, end up being 90, still kind of, um, you know, <laughs> the things that we do that, are, well, you know, okay. But you don't want to be doing it. You, you want to have something else in place to, to carry you through when the, the youthful energies pass or you're out of money or whatever, you know. What's really going to stand you in good stead is you, 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 you have confidence in yourself, you trust yourself, you're at peace with yourself. Your mind isn't nagging you and beating you up and worrying you and, and presenting um, falsehoods for you to believe in. So, you, you know, that's what's meant by cause and effect and, and rebirth and, and, the, and the value of that. It's not just some hocus-pocus theory. It's a way of, of widening your vision. Sure, you're looking into the present moment, but you're, in the present moment you start to put under some scrutiny those qualities that are arising in the present moment. Do you want to sustain this one? Yeah? If you sustain this one for the next 30 years, where's it going to take you? Yeah? So, you know, five minutes it doesn't do much harm. But you realise that if you keep going there, the mind will eventually be trained to keep going to that same place. It becomes obsessive. This is why we rehearse our stories, isn't it? Because the mind keeps going back to the same old bit and picking it up again. And so it gets into the habit, like a dog. He knows where his bowl of food is, so every day he goes to there. It doesn't go over. He knows after a while he's sussed out where the food bowl is going to be. goes into the kitchen. He doesn't go under the sofa. He doesn't go up to the bedroom. He goes to the kitchen. That's where his food is going to be. You know? Or his blanket, whatever it is. Mind does pretty much the same thing after a while it's sniffed around. All right. <laughs> Goes there. So if, if you keep letting it do that, going to the, the worry place, it becomes a habit. Or the grudge place, or the unfair place, or the whatever it is, you know, that stuff. So you say, look, you know, there's other. Bl- Better play. You don't want to keep going there for the next 35 years, five years, or even one year. And if you, if you don't uh, check it, then you, you either check it or you, you somehow endorse it or encourage it. So you check those things. There's a better place to go to. Something. So this is how you develop skill. And it, it's, uh, some of our problems are really not so much you know, in terms of, of hurting, deliberately hurting other people, so much as messing ourselves up. Almost involuntarily messing ourselves up. With things like regret, doubt, worry, fear. Mm-hmm. 
And we don't even see we're doing it. Because after a while that habit becomes so much me. It's the only story in town. <laughs> Dog doesn't know where else to go. Mm-hmm. So, you know, sense of, of we're looking towards uh, just taking away the topics and looking in a way at our, our sense of, of um, what we value highly so that we can do we can recognize we do not wish to hurt other creatures and we deliberately refrain from that really simple things so you bring that to mind you reflect upon that you pick it up so what is that in me that does not wish to abuse other creatures and when you, you feel the quality of that now can I turn that on myself Because it's more than just physical abuse, isn't it? The whole sense of abuse is verbal abuse, slandering, gossiping, backbiting, and so forth, which we do to ourselves. So when we train the mind, what does it feel like when we don't do that to others? We don't take joy. We don't feel excited about spreading bad news about other people. You know, you get together in a little hugger-mugger, you know, you know, somebody always does this. <laughs> you get some kind of glee out of out of that. Oh dear, you know. And they, uh, tra- yeah, actually, as long as we endorse that, we train the mind, train the mind to do do that. So, refraining, and then re- training the mind to honor, to value. To, to be generous, to be loving, to be compassionate, to see things in terms of cause and effect. So even in oneself and in others, things that we find not, not beautiful, ignoble, we recognize uh, this person is afflicted in this case, or it's, this is their karma, this is the, they're receiving these effects, rather than he is, he is this, she is that, you know. So then, he, then you can turn it on yourself. You can see that the difficulties and the afflictions that we have are causes, come from, come from cause and effect rather than, oh, so then you don't follow that. And the not following itself is a, a beautiful training. Dwell in the sphere of the beautiful so that the sphere of the beautiful is dependent upon the quality of kindness when we dwell in, when we cultivate the non-harming the non-abusing the non-denigrating then the, the mind begins to experience this sense of uh, generosity of heart lovingness of heart tenderness of heart gladness of heart so that's where that's where it abides, and to just kind of get the handle on 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 the practice, of, just at that level of, of what the precepts really are about and how we refine them, how we make them inner values rather than outer commandments, how we make them things that give us a sense of of worth and value and beauty and gladness rather than you know shame punishment blame experience or, or being trapped and constricted and tied down you know, those kinds of things, how we feel comfortable within that this is a really important lesson in the path because it's something that, that you can you know, is, is valid every, every day, whatever we're doing, it has effects that you can witness in yourself and it's the fundamental uh, basis from which um, the other factors of awakening spring. Without, the, without this quality, there's no firm foundation. If there is this quality, and you, you really dwell in it and enjoy it, and appreciate it and extend it, you know, beyond just, say, mere morality into the more <coughs> we might say refined ethical qualities such as compassion, uh, patience, uh, generosity, 
and so forth, so you're kind of re- refining that, then you, you do get a sense the mind begins to find it's tr- where the real happiness, where the real foundation for that is. And then these other more meditative qualities have got a firm foundation to, to rest upon. You can't, there's no point aiming for samadhi if you can't tell the truth. <laughs> you know, you've got to start the, the basis until you really know what, what truth feels like because you don't know the gladness of the mind. So the mind doesn't have anything to samadhi into, you know. It's not, samadhi is not kind of just holding onto an object. It's been feeling the quality of ease and comfort and dwelling and abiding in that. That's, that's what samadhi is about. And if the mind is kind of shifty, it can't do it. Mm. Offers for your reflection. Mm-hmm.